Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the some tensions between the U.S. and Iran. We're going to talk about uh, Joe Biden being accused of quid pro quo, and... We're going to talk about some bold accusations being levied our way about America and the West being satanic. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. We have Russia continuing its missile bombardment of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, likely in preparation for their coming winter offensive. Uh, well, this is uh, knocking out railway stations. Is not start. It's starting to knock out communications. Not quite to the degree you would expect for a country at war, but you know they're, they're going to get to it. They're, the gloves are off. They're now fighting in Russia, courtesy of the annexation, so they're going to treat this like a war. They have 300,000 people coming in, reservists, and I have a very strong feeling that these missile bombardments are going to start hitting really, really critical pieces of the pie when it comes to Ukraine defending itself. All of a sudden, Zelensky won't be able to make video calls to the rest of the world because the lines will be down. And you know, at that point, we'll know. At that point, we'll know definitively that the Russians are serious about this. Because as of now, they, they, you, you have people in Ukraine still using TikTok, so uh, the the Russians aren't as serious as they could be. But I have a feeling they're getting there. We have in Africa peace talks. We talked last week about Ethiopia deciding that they were going to come to the table for the talks, and the Tigray agreed. The rebels in Tigray they agreed, and this was. A peace that was going to be brokered by the African Union. It was called for by the African Union. And both sides, interestingly enough, had agreed to have this peace and this ceasefire and these talks. But then the violence between them shot up. And both sides have now walked away from the talks as the reality on the ground appears not to let them engage in that dialogue. Now, whether this is an act of foreign sabotage or if it was just more extreme elements on either side of the war deciding that they wanted that they wanted to resolve this by force rather than by diplomacy and negotiations remains to be seen, but I'll, I'll just throw those possibilities out there, especially when you have things like Nord Stream and uh, what Iran is accusing America of uh, before we get to the satanic stuff, but it's a, there's a different accusation, but um. So just throwing those possibilities out there, because it's very strange that you have these two sides agree to these talks, and then almost immediately, literally less than a week later, you have fighting escalating between them, and now they're they're both walking away from the peace talks that they both agreed to go to. It's very strange. I mean, usually you, you don't you don't even get that far. You know, they don't agree to the peace talks one side says no and the other side says yes and then eventually the other side says yes but the first side says no sometimes they both say no at the same time but here they both said yes 
they were both willing to come to the table. And very, I'll say suspiciously, you get an increase in violence almost immediately. It's very strange. I'll just throw that out there. Those are the those are some of the possibilities I'm thinking about. Uh, extreme factions within both sides, or foreign sabotage possibilities. We don't know yet, but I find it very suspect that that would happen at that precise timing. But um, for the time being, the Ethiopian federal government is now setting its sights on airports and federal buildings and federal properties in Tigray. So uh, some more s parallels can be drawn between this conflict and the American Civil War in that uh, in the American Civil War, it was sparked by the Confederates trying to seize federal property. And then you had the Union coming down initially with the Cassus Belli of you attacked federal property. So now we go to war. So you have a little bit of that element here in this war at a much later stage, though. But so at, at, at this point in our Civil War, we were it, it was just a straight up battlefield and it was a war. No one was really talking about federal property. All that had already been seized by the Confederates. Uh, and so it was really just about, you know, taking the country back at that point. So it looks like Ethiopia may be put in a position where they have to go for the gold in a sense, because either Ethiopia wins or we get a perpetual, perpetual stalemate between these two. Now, if the stalemate happens, maybe they'll have another chance at negotiations. But with the negotiations falling apart so quickly like this, and now Ethiopia talking about trying to take back these federal properties, maybe, maybe that you're going to have one side, you know, tire out. I mean, Ethiopia does have the manpower advantage here if they're able to rally it. Because they, they have lots of... Ethiopia is a very fractious country. It's not like a single ethnicity or a single nationality even, really. There's lots of different ethnicities who associate more with themselves and their clan and their tribe than they do with the nationality. So even though they all share the nationality of Ethiopian, they all identify more with their in-group. And the group is not the nationality. So, Ethiopia, while they do have the manpower advantage over Tigray, Tigray has a much more consolidated, uh, how do I put it? They're much more consolidated in their nature. They're much more uh, unified in their, their culture, their tribe, and their... Well, in, in their view, their nationality, I mean, they're seceding, they're trying to become their own nation. They're much more homogeneous in that way. So they're much more cohesive as a unit, even though they're smaller than Ethiopia, the rest of Ethiopia. So you have a very, a very interesting conflict here. So Ethiopia, if they can rally their manpower and their industry and their economy can outlast the Tigray, especially since Eritrea to the north of Tigray doesn't like Tigray very much and has good, uh, they've left, goodness, they've stayed out of the war and this is very much to the benefit of the, well, actually to the benefit of both the Tigray and Ethiopia having Eritrea stay out of it, but Eritrea doesn't like 
Tigray. So Tigray doesn't get any help in that regard. And when you look at a map, Tigray can't get out from the region without going through Eritrea. I mean, they could go through Sudan, maybe, but Ethiopia has a deal with Sudan. So then it would come down to whether or not the Sudanese start double dealing. But as it stands, Ethiopia has Tigray landlocked, which means that if Ethiopia can stay in the fight long enough, they may win a war of attrition, uh, especially in the realm of economics. They can win that way if it comes down to it. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully they can resolve this faster and the fighting can stop. But this is what we're looking at with the Civil War here and the stalemate that continues and persists. So there's that. But we have other news as well. We have Germany, who has claimed to reach 95% gas storage capacity. And... We, a couple weeks back, we talked about them making the claim that they had reached 90% storage and 95 was their new goal. Now they're claiming to reach, to have reached 95%. So basically they're saying that the gas is at full capacity. We're, we're good to go for the winter. And my response to this is that my, my response to the last story about this, where they said they were at 90%, I, I said, oh, wow, we're just lying now. My response now is, so we really are just lying now. Uh, and again, that's just what I think. Maybe they're telling the truth. But I think they're lying. <laughs> I don't see how you have so much gas from Russia cut off from you. And you're, you're siphoning gas away from homes and industry. But the gas has to get to you. So I'm wondering how they managed to fill this up with reduced gas flow. Now again, maybe they've told the truth, and I, I'm, my skepticism has uh, failed me in this regard. But, how long will that last, if, even if it's true? Because people are not going to go through this winter cold, they're going to demand that the gas be turned on. No, there's, there's going to be enough gas for the military. In fact, the Germans are planning to put troops on the streets during the winter to preempt any riots protests about the inevitable crisis that they're about to go through with regards to energy that they're already planning to put the troops out there but whether they're telling the truth or not i saw something very interesting today that i think is going to be very relevant to the continent of europe in a moment and what i saw today while i was out during work i saw some snowfall it was only a, a, a light flurry, a very, very light flurry, nothing heavy enough to even leave white on the ground. It was, you, you almost didn't notice it. It was that light. I, I wouldn't have noticed it myself. It had the flakes not melted on my windshield. That's what gave it away, because at first I thought it was just pollen. There was a whole lot of pollen recently where I live, and it's, it's all over my car and my car seats. But that's what I thought it was. But then it melted on the windshield, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's snow. The cold of winter, folks, is but a few weeks away, and I have just seen the first snow. Now, I don't live in Europe, I live in America, I live in Illinois. But Europe isn't going to be far behind. In fact, they've probably seen similar already. But again, it wasn't heavy enough to even leave white on the ground, you know. 
how when you get enough snow, it piles up, and, and you have snow on the ground. But we're getting to that point, and it's only we're only halfway through October, and I'm seeing snow now. This is this is the worst case scenario here. This is the worst case scenario here. I, I outlined it uh, months back when I talked about the various cases. We could have had a relatively warm winter where it's cold, but maybe there's not that much snow, and you know. It doesn't get really cold until like January, February, and you know, and the winter is short. You know, that was that was the best case scenario. The likely scenario I said would be that it starts to get cold in October. It gets re it gets colder in November, then it gets really cold in December, and you start to see the snow. You know, a, a normal winter scenario. We have ended up with the worst case scenario. It's cold in October. It's it was cold today was the coldest day of the past few months i mean we we we've still been coasting off of summer temperatures it was 50 and 60 last week and for most of this week uh and only over the last few days it's been in the 40s but today it was in the the high 30s today was the high 30s so we're only halfway through october we're down into the 30s now the 40-30 range. This is the worst case scenario. The cold has come this fast. It's, it's come early. Which means the gas has to start getting used early. And we're not even at December yet. The winter goes on until uh, through at least halfway through March. And even then, the the snow sure does take its time to go away. I remember it was a, a massive like snowstorm in April this one time. The snow didn't last very long, but it was still something to watch. It's like, wow. But this is the worst case scenario. Winter is here. It's here early. Well, it's not winter, winter technically, but the temperatures tell a different story. The, the winter cold is here early. The winter cold is here early. And uh, for the sake of the Germans, I hope that their government is telling the truth about being at 95% gas storage capacity. But we'll find out soon enough. We sure will find out if they were telling the truth soon enough. I pray for, I pray for Europe. I hope for the best. But I quite frankly expect the worst. I, I, I don't think this is going to end very well for Europe. Not like this. Not at the rate that we're going. Not at the rate that they're going either. But I... I the, the humanitarian crisis is right around the corner. It's looking bad. Now, if I could find a way to get that firewood across the Atlantic, you know, maybe I would. You know, Of course, I'd sell it. I, I'm not a Lend-Lease type of person. But at least it'd be there. I, I don't know how they're going to get this firewood stuff. I don't know if it'll be enough either, but, you know, it would have been something. But goodness, the winter is coming. And I pray for Germany. I pray for all the countries of Europe. And I hope it was worth it. I hope the, the sanctions war, the, the, the moral righteousness, that the whole arc, that whole story arc we had at the beginning, from the beginning of the war in Ukraine... Uh, the Russian intervention, I should say, and 
the February of this year. This whole arc where we've pandered to our own egos, really, talking about our moral superiority, how we had we were sanctioning Russia because what they were doing was evil. And never mind what America does in the Middle East, but Russia was evil. We we were staying up for Ukrainians and we 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 stand with Ukraine. All that, and we were going to sanction Russia. We're not going to open up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Because it was done. It was done. It was being checked, and then the war happens, and they they choose to shut it down. I hope it was worth it. Because I don't think it was. I don't think it was. And I have a feeling tens of millions of people are suddenly going to find themselves thinking the same way I do in a couple weeks. Potentially a couple months, but looking like a couple weeks. So, stay warm if you're in Europe, How, however you can. I, I, I don't know. I, I have no answers for you. I have no answers for you. The, the answers I did have for you are now off the table. It's it's not like I can just prescribe the Nord Stream pipelines just undo the sanctions and get the Nord Stream. Well, the, the Nord Streams are sabotaged, so that's off the table, at least temporarily. I don't, I don't, I don't know what... I got nothing for you. <laughs> I've got nothing for you. But stay warm, folks. Please. Stay warm. We have Biden approving sending another three quarters of a billion dollars of my money to Ukraine. We have Lebanon and Israel agreeing to a maritime border in the eastern Mediterranean. That's that's the only maritime border they have. And I have a feeling that maritime boundaries in that region are about to become very important because just the other week we were talking about Turkey and Libya making another agreement on these on these no goodness on hydrocarbons they made the agreement on gas well they, they were planning on an agreement with gas but they made an agreement with oil and other hydrocarbons they made an agreement with energy in the eastern Mediterranean which sort of overlays with their previous agreement where they had their zones meet up with one another, where Turkey's uh, maritime zone would meet up with Libya's maritime zone, cutting straight across the eastern Mediterranean and pushing Turkey's zone of influence and control way further out than the UN 12 miles off their coastline thing. And... It's it's caused a lot of tension, especially with Greece, because that the meeting point between Turkey and Libya comes very close to Crete, the island of Crete, which is part of Greece. And so now you have Israel and Lebanon talking about their maritime boundaries. In time, you're going to get Cyprus and northern Cyprus talking about their maritime boundaries. You're going to get Greece and Egypt talking about their maritime boundaries. And I have a feeling it's going to get hot. Now, the French showed up one time, maybe they'll show up again, but if the Turks decide not to back down this time, we could have a problem on our hands. We could actually see NATO members fighting NATO members. Turkey against Greece and France. Now, what, what would that say about this alliance if that were to happen? Especially at a time like this, when we've heard nothing but how the West is unified and how... Putin has made his greatest mistake, and he unified NATO and unified Europe, uh, more unified than they've ever been. Well, what happens if you have all that, that fluff, and then you get a NATO member 
getting into a war with another NATO member over gas, that would shatter all illusions. Uh, hopefully, you know, some people still believe things that aren't true, uh, like Putin sabotaging the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, again, again, I said it once, I'll say it again. If you couldn't see through that one, you are lost intellectually. That was, uh, that was all us. That was all us. I, I don't know how to tell it to you. I'm just going to tell it to you. That was all us. That was, there was no Putin involved in that one. But um, I have a feeling the maritime boundaries in the Eastern Med are about to get really, really important. We have NATO planning nuclear exercises. I believe Russia is also planning their own nuclear exercises. So we're just playing a great game of brinkmanship because people think that eh, this is a game, even though it's not. You have the EU looking to add Bosnia to its list of member states, which will be interesting to see. Um, we'll have Sweden and Germany, who refuse to publish the findings on their investigations into the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. They say they know who did it, but they won't say who it is. But they aren't saying that it's Putin, and we know that if it, if it was Putin, if it was Russia, they would have just said so. They, they, they would have just said so. They, they've accused them right off the bat of being the ones responsible. If it was Russia, they would have immediately said so. And they would have used it as a, a rallying cry for more aid for Ukraine, more money laundering through Ukraine, more weapons to Ukraine. That's what they would have done. None of them want to fight Russia directly. They have their out in Ukraine. They're going to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainians. So if Russia was the one who actually sabotaged the pipelines, well, they, they'd just give more money and aid to Ukraine. They'd have more foreign legions go to Ukraine. And that'd be the end of the story. But the fact that they aren't just coming out and saying that Russia did it, says a lot about who didn't do it. <laughs> it wasn't the Russians. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. It was that was all us. That was all America. That that, that thing has US that thing has USA written all over it. Unfortunately for me being an American, but that that's just the way it is. That is exactly how it is. That's that's all us. And you know what? I own that. Even though I don't want to. But we're going to... Eventually, they'll have to release it, I imagine. But I maintain the solemn and firm belief... I mean, <laughs> that the United States of America was responsible for this. I maintain that. Yes. I do maintain it, indeed. But, that's the not-so-rapid-fire news... But now we get into the meat of this episode. We have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Some wild accusations, some tensions with Iran, and we'll get into that in just a second. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of today's episode. And we'll start with some U.S. tensions with Iran. Iran has been accused of supplying drones and missiles to Russia. These are kamikaze drones. They fly in and they blow up and they... They're also accused of supplying surface-to-surface -surface missiles, so these are missiles that are fired from surface ground vehicles to hit ground targets. Uh, so that, uh, it's easy, easy, simple stuff, but and plausible, mind you, because Iran does make its own military equipment. They make their own military equipment. They have lots of multiple rocket, they have lots of multiple launch rocket systems that they have. They're not. 
not guided missile systems, but they're sort of spam missile systems. They're unguided. And so when you use those, you just use a lot of them and you aim them at a, a target, uh, an area, so to speak, so that some of them will hit the target. These are cheap and easy to produce. And in the case of the war that the Russians are fighting, they can be used in place of artillery. I mean, the Ukrainians have used it in the form of our HIMARS that we've been supplying them. They those they fire off a salvo of those, and a number of them will hit the target. Others might miss or hit somewhere close to the target, but it's the salvo that matters. So it's possible that Iran is supplying Russia with these kinds of missiles and these kinds of drones, because the kamikaze drones are easy to make. If you if you can build a a, t a toy airplane uh, or a remote control airplane, you can you can strap a bomb to it and congratulations you have a, a kamikaze drone if you can strap a powerful enough bomb to it you can do some real damage and it, you don't need much so it is possible that these weapons are actually being sent to the russians i'm not saying that they are i haven't necessarily confirmed that myself but i will say it is a strong possibility now whether or not the russians need this i don't think they do they can make their own but I don't think they'll deny using this. And the Iranians can use this as an opportunity to see the effectiveness of their own weapons on a NATO-trained military, which effectively can be a stand-in for any NATO military, namely the United States or Israel, you know? I mean, you have Turkish drones being used by Azerbaijan in the number of wars that they've fought against Armenia over the past two years. They've fought two and apparently drones played a very great role in Armenia losing because <laughs> the Azerbaijanis had the drone advantage even though the Armenians usually came out on top in those in military conflicts between them and their neighbor but with the drones the Azerbaijanis managed to turn the tide or or at least that's the the single item that we can point to as to why the Azerbaijanis are now winning but that's probably coming along with reforms and tactics and strategy. You know, the, the things that people don't focus too much on until they, they just bring you such stunning success on the global stage that it becomes un... You, you just can't ignore it. And Azerbaijan is not going to get to a point like that. So people look toward the equipment rather than the tactics. And I'm pretty sure tactical reforms from getting your ass beat. I'm pretty sure if you get your ass beat enough, you're gonna you're gonna start doing some reforms on the tactics of your troops, and integrating those tactics with the weapons you have and the weapons you'll acquire. And the Azerbaijanis have been putting those drones to great use. To the point where the Armenians feel that they have to call the Russians for help every time they get into it with the the Azerbaijanis. So, Iran. Similar to Turkey in that regard, because Turkey supplied the drones to Azerbaijan, Iran might now be supplying drones to Russia to see their effectiveness on the battlefield. And to perhaps even see how a, a battle-hardened military would use those drones, because the Russians are quite battle-hardened at this point. So the way they would use the drones is probably going to be a, pretty close to the most effectiveness you're going to get out of those drones, 
And the Iranians themselves don't even have to be in the war to learn these things. They can just observe. And then they can implement those tactics and whatever strategies the Russians use to best implement Iran's equipment. And they can take those and use them for their own military because they made the equipment. So why why not let the Russians do all of the heavy lifting and then you can reap the rewards? And then become a major military power in your own right, which is going to be very helpful if you're waging a silent war against, say, Israel. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, that the Iranians would be so harsh and so cruel as to do something like that to the, the poor Israelis. But they might. <laughs> but I think that's a strong possibility that that might be happening. I've, I've just laid out all the these reasons why it would be a good idea. And I, I'm still over here like, oh, I don't know if it's actually happening. <laughs> but... <laughs> And I, th I think it's a strong possibility. What can I say? I, I think they actually might be doing it. I can see plenty of reasons why they would do it. Plenty of benefits and not many drawbacks. Aside from potentially losing your own equipment in this war. But the benefits seem to me to outweigh the cons. The, the pros outweigh the cons here. So if they are supplying Russia with these drones and these missiles, well, they're going to they're going to be taking notes feverishly if they're smart. So they can take everything that the Russians do, implement them into their own army and become a powerhouse in their region, an even bigger powerhouse than they already are and bigger than they were already becoming. I've said many times before that Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East. They do this and now the, the dominance starts to become an unquestionable thing. Because with this, they can learn how to fight a NATO or a NATO-trained military. That means the United States. That means Israel. That means any puppet government the United States sets up in the Middle East, the Iranians can fight and win against. If they're smart. Which I think they are. The Iranians have been very, very smart. The fact that they're even in this advantageous position to begin with is in indicative of that. Not just in their region, but internationally with their links to Russia and to China, their reproachment between them and Saudi Arabia. They're, they have to be smart to be achieving all these things. And the same goes for Putin. I do not believe Putin is a madman. I think he's pretty smart. And I have a feeling... Actually, no, I don't have a feeling. I, I can say with, a, uh, with certainty that when this war is over and I do that special episode, I've now promised... Uh, that I, I have every intention of making. I'm in the process of making that episode as we speak. I just need all the information from the war before I put it out there. I don't know if I'll put it out right after the war finishes or if I'll wait a couple weeks to, so we can see some of the immediate after effects of the Russo-Ukrainian war. But I will, I will have an episode where we sit and reflect on all the things that we saw in the Russo-Ukrainian war, and I'll have a segment for the, the major winners, the big losers, and as it's looking right now, Iran is on the winners list, right along with Russia and Turkey, so that's a, a sneak peek into the special episode to come, but I'll digress. You have accusations of Iran supplying military aid to Russia. Now, why that's bad, but sending billions of dollars to Ukraine is good, yeah, 
I, you can't, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess supporting Nazis is the, <laughs> is the new hip thing to do. That, that's what the kids are down with. You know, the kids who are 70, 80 years old. Mm-hmm. But, but Iran is being accused of that. And Iran has actually blamed the U United States, well, the American president, in their words, for the chaos in their streets. Uh, Iran has been dealing with a lot of protests and riots. The news media over here covers it as though it was anti-regime, anti-government protests. And that, that sparked me to think about how these sorts of conclusions, because they, they get eaten up by a lot of other people. All these, they're protesting against the government. They're, they're, they, they want democracy and freedom. And while some of them might want those things, I think it's inaccurate to frame it that way. Because we here in America have protests all the time. France has protests all the time. There's always protests. There's protests in Germany, France, Spain. I already said France. Britain, Italy, Poland, the Czech Republic, Austria now. You have, you have protests all over this place. And I'm pretty sure that before the war, you had protests in Ukraine as well. You had protests in Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands with those farmers protesting. We, we just had the truckers protesting in Canada and the United States when they drove across the country and then cut off the capitals over the COVID lockdowns and the, the mandates. And, and then those, the, all those mandates conveniently disappeared right when they did that. You have protests everywhere, you, even in Africa. But only when it's countries we don't like are these protests framed in this way that it's, oh, it's anti-government protests. It's anti-regime. They, they don't, uh, the, the people are against Putin. The people are against Xi Jinping. Uh, I mean, there's protests in Japan and Australia and New Zealand. There's protests in India. There was a major, major farmers protest in India. There was a massive general strike that happened in India. And it, it ground the country to a halt. No one says that protests like that were anti-government protests. No one says that the, the Black Lives Matter protests and riots in America were anti-government protests, anti-regime protests. So I, the framing is indicative of the bias, in my opinion. Because it's only with the biases that the countries we don't like are authoritarian, dictatorships, and don't have the support of the people that you can frame it in that way and think that you're being honest. Because in my view, where I do not believe Russia to be an authoritarian state, and I do not believe Putin to be a dictator, and I do not believe China to be, uh, well, a super authoritarian state, I, and I don't believe Xi Jinping to be Hitler. So when that is the belief, as opposed to Putin is a madman, Putin is uh, the most dangerous man alive, uh, he doesn't have the support of the people, they're always, it's always something, the, the Russian people always are just on the verge of turning against him, but they never do. If you'll notice, judging off the stories you get about Russia, and judging off the stories you get about China occasionally too, but it doesn't happen. Now... In my view, it doesn't happen because these countries are not the way that we're, we're told to believe that they are. Russia's not a dictatorship. China's not a dictatorship. 
Xi Jinping and Putin are not dictators. They're not madmen. And the same goes for even North Korea with Kim Jong-un. The same goes for the Ayatollahs of Iran. These are not dictators. Because these are not dictatorships. In fact, all, all three of these... Well, I said all three. I got, I've automatically discounted North Korea from this. But China, Iran, Russia, these are all republics. Literal republics. I mean, Lukashenko of Belarus... He's a dictator. He says as much. He said he says as much. He is a dictator. But Russia? They're a federation. And when you when you look at what these countries are in their actuality, as opposed to what we're told that they are, it becomes harder to go along with these blatantly untrue statements made about these countries when you hear things like anti-government protests well why does it have to be anti-government why can't it be a protest about policy maybe they just don't like the foreign policy and they want a different one maybe they actually want the war maybe instead of a special military operation they want a war to be declared so they can stop holding back maybe that's what they're protesting about see when you view these countries as authoritarian you can't have nuance in the protests because in the view of people who believe these countries to be authoritarian authoritarian countries don't have protests they don't allow dissent so if the country is authoritarian then the only way you can have protests is if those protests are anti-government but when you don't believe what we are told about these countries and you view them for what they are just countries on the map that have people and that do things we just look at them like regular countries you see that oh okay well not every protest is in opposition to the government as a whole no these protests are in response to this specific issue all oh, these protests over here are about this uh they they were doing this tax reform oh they don't like that Oh, they were trying to deregulate this area of the economy. They don't like that. They, they, oh, they were, they were trying to build this industry here, but that's going to displace these people. So these people are protect. See, when you look at countries like they're normal entities, you can see these nuances, and it becomes, it becomes harder to be, you know, thrown for a loop, with things like anti-government protests, anti-regime protests, and it all stems from your worldview. If you view these countries like they are authoritarians, then the only way they can have protests is if those protests are in opposition to the government at large. But if you don't, if you don't drink that Kool-Aid, so to speak, then you can see these countries for what they are. And you can see the protests for what they are. Protests, people who have grievances and are voicing them to their government. Now, how their government responds to that is entirely up to that government. But let's not pretend that Russia and many other countries are what they are not. They are not dictatorships. So, I, and that, that's just a, a, a point that I've come across uh, in reading the news for this week, and actually reading the news for the past few years. Uh, you hear, uh, you, if you read, you, you'll see it. You know, the anti-government protests here, anti-government protests there. And at first you think, 
oh, wow, everyone's upset with their government. Everyone wants to overthrow their own government. But then when you think about it, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Especially when you see the, the protests in our own country. Well, if that's an anti-government protest, then what does burning down Minneapolis mean? <laughs> uh, surely that... Surely that must be an anti-government protest. Oh no, that's 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 not anti-government. That's for rights and for freedom. So that's just something that I'll I'll dump on you guys as a, as a warning when you read the news for yourself to be aware of such biases because they they have almost hindered my work. Keyword almost. Ha. I've got you. I am your lovely observer, and I will not be fooled by such false views on the world. I have the one true ideology in my back pocket. <laughs> but I'll digress. We have, uh, and, uh, again, that's something to look out for, because it's all over the place. But we have Iran. Blame. Uh, I'm going to get back to the actual news now. We have Iran blaming the American president for chaos in the streets. Uh, he specifically says the American president. He says, quote, the American president who allows himself through his commitments to incite chaos, terror and destruction in another country should be reminded of the eternal words of the founder of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and he's referring to the speech that was given where the founder said, America was the great Satan. End quote. The founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, back when they overthrew the Shahs and the Ayatollahs came to power, uh, the Shahs being the American-installed government in Iran for a while, when they overthrew the Shahs, they called America the great Satan. Now, obviously, they were, they were very upset with us for overthrowing them and installing a puppet regime. For a couple decades. But Great Satan is wild. Great Satan is absolutely wild. But it's interesting. Because now that's two countries. Two countries. Who are essentially saying that we are in league with the devil. That's two countries accusing us of being in league with the devil. With the first being Russia, as when Putin gave his speech commemorating the annexation of those four regions in Ukraine that Russia was occupying, he referred to the West as, quote, the Satanic West. And while I don't think America is Satanic, that's wild. I feel we're uh, a, a little bit too close to that border for my liking. I mean... We don't want to think of ourselves as being satanic. But when you look at how many of our elected officials paid a visit to Epstein Island, having sexual relations with kids who themselves were there on that island with these people as a result of human trafficking and sex trafficking, you start to question if there's some legitimacy and legitimate credence to such a bold claim. That being us being a satanic entity. Uh, now, I don't think we are. But doing a little bit of self-reflection here, let's see what 
why they might think that way. Now, I won't go for the low-hanging fruit of Lil Nas X's uh, recent music video where he's twerking on the devil. I won't go for that one. Instead, I'll go for the other low-hanging fruit of the Vatican City. And the numerous times they were caught touching up on little kids, especially young boys. Numerous times, just within the last 10 years, let alone the past few decades. The, the, just the times within my lifetime. This has happened multiple times. That There's the low-hanging fruit right there. These are not things that a non-satanic country or a non-satanic entity would ever do or accept being done. These are these are not things that non-satanic countries do. Non-satanic countries don't bomb kids and families for 20 years straight in the Middle East. Non-satanic countries don't blow up schools and hospitals in foreign countries without so much as an I'm sorry. They don't invade other people's countries, banish the existing government to the mountains, set up a puppet government, and bankroll said puppet government to the tune of trillions of dollars for 20 years until they lose the will to fight and surrender the country back to the original governing force, like what happened in Afghanistan. People forget. People forget. I myself didn't know until I I, I started doing the, the research for that episode when we were talking about Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul. I myself did not realize until that moment that the Taliban was the ruling government when we invaded back in 2001. And while we fought them for control of their own country, we sold the puppet regime we set up, tens of billions of dollars worth of military equipment, and we laundered trillions of dollars through that country to go right back to our own politicians and special interests at the expense of the taxpayer. Non-satanic countries don't do that. Non-satanic countries don't openly speak of making deliberate efforts to make life so painful for regular, everyday people in another country that they want to overthrow their government. Also that said government will do what we want them to do. And I'm talking here about the addiction we have with economic sanctions and the rather malicious intent we have whenever we use them. And Russia being the, the prime example of this, I bring it up all the time, that we made it very clear that we had every intention of destroying their country by destroying their currency. The, remember, the ruble will be rubble. The, we're going to hit them with the mother of all sanctions. And uh, by proxy, this was going to make the lives of everyday Russians miserable. All in the hopes that Russia wouldn't be able to fight the war anymore. That was the hope. And had we been successful, no one would be complaining about the misery that Russians would be forced to live in as a result of our policy. No one would be complaining about the, the human rights abuses no one be, that caused by us. No, no one would be complaining about the, the poverty in Russia. No one, no one would be complaining about how, oh, the Russians have it so tough. And No, no, no one would be talking about that. We would have ignored it. 
no one would be talking about what we did. I mean, we sanction Iran, we sanction Venezuela, we openly speak of sanctioning China in the event that they go to war with Taiwan. And then for good measure, we threaten to sanction countries that don't go along with our sanctions on other countries. Countries that don't want to go along with our sanctions on Russia get threatened with sanctions themselves. It's just a never-ending thing. We destabilize entire nations through our constant intervention in their internal affairs. Look at Libya, Syria, Iraq, Venezuela, Honduras, Nicaragua, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Iran, Yugoslavia. They don't exist anymore. We overthrow other people's governments and install our own, just like we did in Afghanistan, Iran, and Ukraine. Two out of that three have already cast off our smothering embrace, and Russia will likely do the same for the last, which is Ukraine. But Ukraine is a special case, because there, we not only overthrew the government, the duly elected government, because it happened to be pro-Russian, but we replaced it with Nazis, actual Nazis, and then we armed them with billions of dollars worth of weaponry. We bankrolled their war effort to the tune of almost a hundred billion dollars and counting. And we've laundered tens of trillions of dollars through them. And this, uh, this laundering did not stop when the war began. We propagandize our own people into believing that the atrocities we commit on foreign peoples are done for their own good. And we make our own people believe lies about spreading freedom and democracy when instead we have brought the realities of war upon tens of millions of people. Our name will forever be tarnished by what we did at Abu Ghraib. But again, while I do not believe us to be satanic, I don't believe us to be satanic. I don't think that's what we are. But I do believe we have a lot of self-reflecting to do. And a lot of things that we did, that we need to be thinking about, and that we need to be thinking about how we're not going to do again, instead of hyper-focusing on what other countries are doing. Oh, Russia's doing this. Oh, China's doing this. Look at look at China. Look at the Uyghurs. Look at Hong Kong. Oh, Russia. Look at Ukraine. Look at uh, the, the Russian people, how they, they hate Putin. That's none of our concern. That's none of our business. What are we doing? How can we fix what we are doing? What are the, what are the problematic things that we are doing? Because we can stop what we do. We can control what we do. We don't get to control what Russia does. We don't get to control what China does. So if we want to make the world a better place, we need to start with ourselves. We can do it. We just need the will just need the will so that was a pretty heavy uh let's talk about joe biden <laughs> yeah let's uh quid pro joe we're gonna talk about joe biden joe biden and why are we talking about joe biden well joe biden has been accused by saudi arabia of threatening to reevaluate u.s saudi relations particularly 
with the removal of U.S. security guarantees unless the Arabians delay their production cuts by one month, and this was almost a month ago that he talked about doing this. So one month, that would conveniently last just long enough to keep gas prices down through the midterm elections, thus helping Democrats. And that this is what the, the quid pro quo is. Uh, you give us cheap energy for one month or we'll remove our security guarantees for you. Quid, quid pro quo. And this uh, request, shall we say, was met with a flurry of calls to impeach Biden. It's immediately sparked another wave of calls to impeach him. Uh, we, we've been hearing some talk about impeaching him. I remember Marjorie Taylor Greene has already put forward a number of... How many times? She, I think three? She's already... She's, I think she's already up to three. And that's the one of the reasons I remember her name. I saw a story. She already put up three motions to get this man impeached. So I imagine she'll put up a fourth now with this. But we have, that, that was the immediate response, uh, calls to get this man impeached. Calls obviously coming from the Republicans, but while I think that the Republicans, one, are going to do very well in the midterms, and two, will be successful in impeaching Biden after that success in the midterms that I expect them to have, and this will be done sometime next year when the, the newly elected Congress takes their seats, so until the year is over, the Democrats will still have control. But even if they get to that point, which I think they will, I don't think they're going to be able to convict him. I do not believe they're going to be able to convict him. They might, they'll impeach him, sure, but that's an indictment. They won't be able to convict because I'm not sure they'll be able to acquire the two-thirds majority they would need in the Senate to do so. So unless out of the blue uh, a bunch of Democrats vote to convict, and I'm, I, I mean, it's either it's either the Democrats vote in w with this motion to impeach him and convict him, or the the Democrats them get rid of him themselves with the Twenty Fifth Amendment, while they still hold both chambers of Congress, and the Vice President is still a Democrat, so. They could do that. That's that's something that Trump brought up. He said the 25th Amendment wouldn't be used on him and be used on Biden. Are we about to see that? Who knows? But if the Democrats get uh, pooped on in the midterms, I have a feeling that not exactly going to be very happy with the man in charge. Now, whether or not that'll push them towards the 25th Amendment or I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what they're going to do. Because they've put up with this man for this long. I don't see how getting rid of him at the last second is going to save them. Uh, I guess maybe you'll you'll bump Nancy Pelosi up to the vice president if you do that. And then then even if the Republicans take the House, Nancy gets to stay or stick around. However, I, I can't tell you how this is going to play out. I cannot tell you. It's pretty wacky over here. Let's just say that. But that's that's a damning accusation. Uh, 
going back to the original thing here, which is Saudi Arabia threatening, not threatening, accusing Joe Biden of having threatened them with this removal of U.S. security unless they delayed their production cuts long enough to, for the midterms to go through. And I think it's going to negatively impact the Democrats. And if they got their way, it would have helped the Democrats. Now, why do I believe that this is so impactful for the Democrats, either positive or negative, based on what the Saudis do? Well, why does it have so much sway in this when it really shouldn't? But why do I believe it does? Uh, because high, high gas prices are going to negatively affect the Democrats. I'm just going to say it that way. Now, why would high gas prices negatively impact the Democrats, you ask, on top of that previous question? Well, because most voters will blame whoever's in charge for those high gas prices. So if the Saudis don't cut the oil, if they don't delay their production cuts long enough for the Democrats to hopefully do something in the midterms, which is what they're hoping for, then they're going to have higher gas prices and that's going to cause catastrophe for them in the midterms. If the Saudis do hold off on those production cuts, the Democrats might have a chance. I don't know if they will have as much of a chance as they're hoping for, but it'll be a, whatever chance they have is going to be infinitely better than if the Saudis leave them out to dry and let the gas prices go up, which is exactly what the Saudis have decided to do. But again, why would this negatively impact them? Uh, most voters are just going to blame whoever's in charge for these rising gas prices on top of rising prices on literally everything else. People call it inflation, but it's really just rising prices. Inflation is when you increase the money supply. Prices follow inflation. Prices are not inflation. So you have that. Voters are going to blame whoever's in charge. And it just so happens, unfortunately for them, that the Democrats are in charge. Meanwhile, the Republicans have $2 a gallon as their bribe because we we were that low. If you can believe it, all those all those tens of millions of years ago when we were energy independent. Ah, $2 a gallon. What, what we would give to get that back. But that that's the bribe that the Republicans have up their sleeve if they're smart enough to use it. But Either way, the Democrats are just going to be blamed for the problems, and people are going to vote for the other guy. And Well, if the Democrats can't keep the prices down, well, then that blame comes their way, and they get pooped on in the midterms. And that, that's just the way it is, you know? There, there's no other way around that. This, it's pretty simple. Most people vote with their, their feelings, and their feeling is that things aren't going the right way, and the Democrats happen to be in charge, so get them out of here. Now... What'll happen with the Republicans? Who knows? Uh, who knows? I, I can give you a few guesses. One is that they're going to try to ramrod through some more drilling leases on federal lands. They'll at least make the attempt to get it past Biden, who's going to try to stop it. But hopefully they hopefully they actually do do that instead of just talking about it and talking about how we need to be tough on the world stage. We can start solving our problems here at home with the things we have here at home because we can do it like oil and gas prices for us is a matter of domestic policy because we have oil and gas for europe it's a matter of foreign policy because they don't have it they have to acquire it. 
We don't have to acquire it from somebody else. We can produce it. So the fact that gas prices are as high as they are is a result of a failure on the domestic policy front, not foreign policy. The foreign policy just compounds the problem. But again, remember, we were up to $5 a gallon before the Russo-Ukrainian war began. That's where we were at back last February. So it's important to keep that in mind. We went from $2 a gallon to $5 a gallon before the war began. There was something on the domestic policy front that caused that to happen. Not This isn't Putin's price hikes. Not for us, anyway. Maybe, maybe it is for Europe. But then again, they chose the sanctions, so they really did that to themselves as well. But again, the sanctions are a foreign policy move. So again, Europe is facing high prices because of foreign policy. We here in America are facing high prices because of domestic policy, which means that we don't have to do anything with other countries to get these prices down. We just need to drill for it. So hopefully that's what the Republicans do. Uh, that's one of the good things that might come from the Republicans taking the House and maybe the Senate. Uh, if, if they do take the Senate, it's not going to be like a, a super duper majority or anything like that. I know they're, I know they're, it's 50-50 right now with Kamala being a tiebreaker vote. So maybe the Republicans do take more in the Senate, but I don't know if it's going to be a super majority. But lower energy prices might be one of the good things to come from them. Unfortunately, though, with Republicans controlling both out both chambers of the Congress, which is what's likely to happen, end up happening, you're gonna when the Taiwan war kicks off, we're gonna go through all the same nonsense with Ukraine. But for Taiwan and all that money is gonna go away. And it's uh, speaking of, it's it's been very interesting watching uh, voices on the more conservative side of things. The you know the not woke liberal type. So that that's a very, it's a very broad coalition we're talking about here, because lots of people fall under it. But it's very interesting watching them speak out against the Ukraine war, and give so many reasons that are immediately applicable to Taiwan. Things like Ukraine is not a U.S. ally. Taiwan is not a U.S. ally. As a matter of fact, Ukraine has more legitimacy for the United States than Taiwan does. We don't even recognize Taiwan's government. We have no formal alliance with them. We have no formal defense agreement with them. We have a vague promise to help them defend themselves. That's as far as we get with Taiwan. We recognize the People's Republic of China, not the Republic. The Republic of China is Taiwan. The People's Republic is the country we refer to as China. We don't even recognize their government. They're not an ally of the United States. They're not a NATO member. Why are we promising to defend them? And yet, even with less legitimacy as an entity, less recognized legitimacy from us than we give to Ukraine, we speak of sending our troops to defend that island. We don't, we don't even think, we don't even talk about doing that for Ukraine. But you let these Republicans get in there, that might be what we end up with. It's such a shame. It's such a shame. If only we could have the foreign policy of the far left and the domestic policy of the right, then we'd be working with fire. We'd be, we'd be doing great things. But alas, alas, I gotta take what I can get. <laughs> at least, at least until I can get my Trump back. Well, I get my Trump back, oh boy, I'll be one happy boy. <laughs> but uh, who knows how long I'll have to wait for that. Every, every time someone brings up 2024, he, he laughs at them and he doesn't give a straight answer. 
I don't know what that means, but I, I hope it means he's coming soon. Hopefully, maybe, please, please. But ah, uh, we have lots, lots going on around the world. Lots going on around the world. Uh, all eyes are on Ukraine right now, where America's increasingly being accused of being satanic, uh, and the West in general. But, you know, I, I don't care about the West. I care about what really matters, which is America, baby. But these accusations, man, these are these are bold. I, I don't. I think we should pay attention to them, especially when it comes to our national image around the world. We have. Uh, again, while well, all eyes seem to be on Ukraine right now, and they will be, because um, pretty soon Russia's winter offensive is going to kick off, it's it's nice to have been able to get away from Ukraine. You know, As someone who brings the news to other people, it's nice to get a break from the same story over and over again. Now, granted, I hope, I hope we can get a few more weeks like this before Russia kicks off that winter offensive, which I'm convinced that they're going to do. With all these troops that they're bringing in, all this equipment, all this heavy equipment, the tanks, missiles, and the constant missile strikes across Ukraine. I think they're going, they're getting up for the offense. But it's nice to get away from Ukraine for a little bit. Uh, now, when that offensive begins, I imagine we're going we're gonna to be talking a whole lot about Ukraine. It, it'll be like the beginning of the war again, where every week it was something. Uh, this thing happened, this thing happened. Oh my goodness, this battle here... Uh, I have a feeling it's it's gonna get like crazy for a few weeks there, maybe a couple months, and then all, before we know it, it'll it'll all just be over, and you'll have uh, fleeting actions in the west of Ukraine, where the, the resistance has the Ukrainian resistance has just collapsed, and then you'll have skirmishes between what's left of the Ukrainian army fighting against the, the Russian tidal wave, and it'll be a very surreal thing to watch, just like the beginning of the war. But until that comes, it, it's it's nice to get away from talking about the same story over and over and over again. Um, but not just Ukraine. It's not just Ukraine. We're, we're looking at something else bubbling up. Uh, one of the flashpoints, the major flashpoints, that is the Eastern Mediterranean. Israel and Lebanon talking about their maritime border. Right after we... We're talking about Turkey and Libya, talking about their maritime border. How long until Greece and Egypt start to play in this area as well? Because when you have all these characters playing over such a... I mean, it's not exactly a small space, but it certainly ain't big enough for the lot of them. Who comes out on top? What happens here? Because Turkey doesn't appear to be interested in a mediated settlement. I'll, I'll just say that right off the bat. They appear to have no interest in a mediated settlement. They want what they want. They're willing to give you a little bit uh, as long as it advances their goals and what they want to get, which is why they're working with Libya. But what happens when Greece says no? What happens when France shows up with a destroyer again? What happens if Egypt steps up to play? What happens if Israel or even Lebanon? Well, Lebanon is completely out of the picture. I'm not, I, don't, I don't even know why I said Lebanon. They're in the middle of an economic depression right now. There, let me let me stop. <laughs> but what happens if Israel pops up? What happens if Cyprus decides to do anything? Do you get a war? 
between NATO members? If France attacks Turkey, does that mean Turkey can, can call Article 5 against another NATO member? And does that then constitute an offensive war against a NATO member that France can use to have its own Article 5? How would that work? I'm not saying that that's how it's going to happen. I'm just saying that based on what happened the last time, there's a strong likelihood of a, another confrontation between Turkey and France. Because uh, Greece doesn't appear to be in a position to defend its claims here. Like they have, they have the biggest claims out of everyone. They have so many islands, and those islands give them more and more exclusive economic zones and more and more territorial waters under their control as per UN law. So while they have the biggest claims here, and they have Crete, the island of Crete, way out in the middle uh, of this area, this region, even though they have the biggest claims, they seem to have one of the the most diminished abilities to defend these claims, while Turkey's ability to defend its claims are growing. So what happens when the claims conflict? And it comes to armed conflict to settle who owns what? Do you get NATO on NATO? Do you get some sort of system of alliances forming? Uh, and and a, a major regional conflict like this? Like, what happens? We... I, I'm not entirely sure. But this region is looking unstable, to say the least. It's looking unstable, and it might blow up in our faces while we're all looking at Ukraine. Then what? Do we treat Turkey and Erdogan like he's the next Hitler? And if so, what are we going to do about it? We gave all of our shit to Ukraine. What are we, what are we going to do about this if it does come to that? Who knows? But that's definitely something I picked up on in gathering uh, the news for this episode, is that the, the Eastern Mediterranean is uh, getting a little uh, hot. Getting a little hot. At the same time, you have Ukraine about to get lit up like a Christmas tree. So does some other flashpoint start to light up too? Is Are we about to see China go for Taiwan just out of the blue overnight? We just, we just wake up tomorrow morning and the Chinese have sent... Five million men to the island of Taiwan. Is is that what we're going to wake up to? I don't know. But uh, definitely alerted me to the danger of hyper-focusing on one area. And that's Ukraine. Even though it's almost a necessity. Given the, the relevancy of the news there. But whatever may happen. However it may happen. That is all I have for you today. My lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Things are heating up. And it's good to get a good look at everything. While you can, before it blows up in your face. But, regardless, we will have fun watching it all together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you have been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday... Servus.